let me just give you a flavour about how the um, even uh, the lunchtime is going to run, and um, then we'll dive into it. So we'll just hear uh, a bit from Gavin about his early life playing career, um, match of the day punditry. Hear a bit from him, sort of what he thinks of as the the central claims of the Christian faith, uh, and uh, then the, the difference he thinks those things make in the day to day of. Uh, different points of life, um, and then there'll be a chance for you guys to ask any questions that you might have um, just from the floor and stick up a hand, or feel free to scribble down uh, something on the sheets of paper you'll have received uh, on the way in. Um, but let's, uh, let's make a start. So Gavin, great to welcome you along. Um, we had, your, we had your, da- your dad was just here, but he heard yeah. you over at the idea store, so he's, he's headed off. Um, just tell us a bit about your early life. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, I was brought up in a footballing family. My dad, who was here, heard the first talk and uh, has gone back home uh, now. He was a professional footballer for Charlton Athletic, not far from here. My dad, Keith, played for Charlton for 17 years in the 60s and 70s. Uh, in fact, he was the first substitute uh, ever used in English league football. Um, on the day that they had substitutes for the first time, my dad was a young 20-year-old and got on the field first, was clocked as the first substitute. It's a trivial pursuit question, that. Um, and, We're going to uh, look very clever. Yes, indeed, you will. You'll get that one. You'll remember it now. My dad played more times outfield than Ch- any other player in Charlton's history, um, and he hates the fact that it's a trivial pursuit question that he wasn't good enough to get in the team on that day that he gets remembered for. But... Uh, Grew up around the smell of the dressing room, the, the, the valley. I used to go down to Charlton's ground, knew the players. And um, my father was an excellent role model um, and also a coach. And so I grew up always just wanting to follow my dad's footsteps and, and really the schoolboy dream to become uh, a professional footballer. Went through the ranks at school, district, county. Played for England schoolboys at age 15. Um, and at uh, age 15, you know, then all the clubs are, are looking to sign you. Um, uh, small clubs like uh, Tottenham, Arsenal. Careful, careful. On Arsenal, not on Tottenham. I agree with that. Uh, little clubs like that were interested. Um, I ended up signing for Queen's Park Rangers, who were a top, top division team. They had a bright young manager called Terry Venables at the time. And, uh, and I went there with the idea that maybe at the slightly smaller club, because obviously they were smaller than Arsenal, I would come through uh, quicker. And... Um, yeah, 17, signed as a professional footballer. Went from QPR to, to Gillingham and Bournemouth. So took a little bit of time out the top flight with the aim of coming back up um, to the top flight again. And when I was at Bournemouth, I was there with Harry Redknapp. Um, he was a bright young manager himself then. And uh, I remember Harry was on the phone in the side of the training ground one day. And you often see that on Sky. You know, Harry's on the phone. He's often playing, placing a bet on the dogs or the horses, but this day he was doing a bit of business, and he said to me, he said, uh, Gavin, Newcastle United have come in for you, and uh, I knew that was the big move up, and I went home to my wife. We'd been married a year in Bournemouth. It's lovely down in Bournemouth. We've just got our first nice little house. This is the life of a, a footballer's wife. It's not quite as you see on the TV. Uh, I've gone home to her. I said, darling, Newcastle United have come in, and uh, it's a big club. I said, we've got to move. And she just burst into tears. And she said, where's Newcastle? <laughs> I said, it's up north and it's cold, but uh, we got to go. And we went there, and for me, that's where it very, very much took off. Great. And um, given your comment about Arsenal, um, re- relegated with the first two clubs that you played with Gillingham and with, and with Bournemouth, is that right? Yes. Um, you know, football... You experience uh, ups and downs. You know, it's not all success for 
for, for everyone all the time. And I'd ex- I experienced both things. I experienced promotion. I experienced relegation. It's a, it's a tough thing to do. it, And I experienced it early on in, in my career with, with Gillingham and with Bournemouth. Um, and, uh, and yet I experienced promotion uh, with Newcastle United. Um, and we've got some pictures of you through the playing through the playing uh, here career. Go. Here we go. So this is you. This is you at Newcastle, look, looking good. Um, hair's got a little bit shorter um, by the time you get to by the time you get to Chelsea. And there it is. And there it is the Not. the Viali the haircut. Yes. As well, Viali was called. my inspiration. Gianluca Viali at Chelsea. Do you remember the Italian striker? And uh, I mean, we had Rude Hullet who came, and I was never going to grow dreadlocks, <laughs> but. Viali, that was a good style, and I, I won a uh, close season. I said, I'm going to shave it off and see what it's like, and I could always grow it back. And now it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you're like me, you're thinking, yeah, no, it's right. Fashion de- it's a fashion decision, people. It's all about fashion. Now, like now you, you grow know. your hair underneath. <laughs> yeah, it just migrates, that's yeah. right. Um, so just give us a flavour of what it was like at, at Newcastle when you got up there. Sure. Newcastle was where it took off for me, and uh, I played for Jim Smith there and Ozzy Ardiles, you know, the Argentinian player that used to play for Spurs and then went on to be a manager. It was great playing for Ozzy, but the, the man that really uh, took Newcastle to, to the top flight uh, was Kevin Keegan. And um, people always ask me about Kevin, um, and, you know, some of you will be involved in leadership and big management, and you'll think about leadership uh, skills, and I always think the leaders I play for, what are the skills they they had one thing is Kevin was a great visionary. He cast a vision of where he was going to take us, even beyond where we thought we could go, and then he gave us the steps to get us there. So that was what made him a great visionary. The second is that he was a great motivator of men. So he knew what to, make, what to say to one person that would make them tick as opposed to saying to another person. And his first game was Bristol City uh, at home at St. James's Park, and it was 30,000 sellout. Now it's like a 50,000 stadium, but it's 30,000. They locked 5,000 out. That's how mad the Geordies are for their football and for Kevin Keegan. And he'd only been in the building a week. I mean, Kevin had retired in 1984, I think it was, and flown to Marbella and lived there for seven years. He was one of football's first millionaires. He didn't know much about the English scene. So he came on and he was in the building about a week. And I saw him in the dressing room going round to all the players individually. And he came to me, and he went, you're the man today. You're the one. And I thought, wow. <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, Bill Shankly used to say to me, now Bill Shankly was a great manager for Liverpool of years gone by, and Keegan used to play for Liverpool, and, and Shankly was like a father figure to Keegan. So Shankly, like a, imagine like an Alec Ferguson, you know, Shankly's like that stature. And he said, Bill Shankly used to say to me, just go out there on the field and drop hand grenades all over. In other words, you know, you're the danger man. You just go and cause trouble wherever you go. And I thought, Shankly said that to Keegan. Keegan said that to me. And I, like, I burst out that tunnel. I was on that field. I ran around for 90 minutes. We won 3-0. And um, so that just gave you a little bit of a flavour of Kevin. And it was proved true because he showed it over the years. And a couple of years later when he got the England manager's job, I think his first game was Poland at Wembley. And Paul Scholes, who played a similar position to me, similar type of player, Paul Scholes scored a hat-trick. And he said in the paper the next day that um, Kevin's a great motivator of men. He wrote in the paper. He said, he said to me before the game, Bill Shankly used to say to me, just go ahead. And I, and I thought I was special, but uh, clearly what I'm saying is he knew what to do to make people tick. That was Keegan. Great. And then some time at... Um, Chelsea, where you got the, the haircut inspiration, um, 
And she scored home and away for Chelsea to beat Man U, big t- the league winners in the end that season, yeah. to beat them 1-0. Um, just, and then you went into an FA Cup as well. Yeah. Just tell us a bit about, tell us about the FA Cup one, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, the se- season for me personally at Chelsea, my first season, uh, I was bought for 1.25 million by Glenn Hoddle. Doesn't seem like much now, does it, that transfer fee? That's was like one week for uh, no, it's crazy. Some, some of these guys, it's isn't crazy. it? I mean, you know, I, I had a mortgage when I retired from playing football. <laughs> they don't know what one is now. Um, it'd gone quite well, I'd, and I'd scored some important goals, two of them being Man United at home, Man United away. We did the double over them. But they were the, they were the better team. They won the league, and we, we'd faced them then in the cup final. So it was set, you know, Reds v. Blues, North v. South, Cockneys v. the Northerners. Uh, and we'd been their bogey team. And we had a game plan to go out there and keep quite tight early on because they had flying wingers like Ryan Giggs and Andrew Ch- Kanchelskis and they had Cantona up front with Hughes and so we thought keep nice and tight we may get an opportunity 20 minutes into the game uh, the ball popped down to me uh, for 25 yards out and I just hit the ball sweetly didn't feel it go off my foot and it, it's amazing to think that in an FA Cup final with nearly 100,000 people at Wembley and millions watching you, you can't even hear your teammate from here to there that everything just went in slow motion. I just began to see the ball fly over Peter Schmeichel, the big Danish goalkeeper, and he started to backpedal, and I'm watching it. It's going over his head, and I'm thinking, it's going to go in. And he starts to backpedal and backpedal. I'm thinking, it's going to be a goal, and it's going to be 1-0 to Chelsea. Peacock scores again. Man United are going to think, it's just not their year. And he backpedaled, backpedaled, reached for it, it beat him, and then bang, it hit the crossbar, came out. And it just goes back to normal motion then, and everything's flying again. We went uh, nil-nil at half-time, and Glenn Hoddle said, just don't do anything silly for the first 10 minutes in the second half. And what do we do? We did something silly. We got a penalty given against us. And, and then another penalty, and uh, that wasn't Neither a penalty. of which were penalties. No, the second one wasn't a penalty. I've got to get over that. That's a long time ago, but David Ellery was the ref. But um, anyway... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a penalty. Um, and then it just and shows you... you lost 4-0. 4-0 we four lost. Nil. But it just shows you sometimes in, in professional sport uh, and sometimes in life that, that difference between success and failure is an inch because three years later, Chelsea went to Wembley, played Middlesbrough in the cup final. Roberto Di Matteo, Chelsea's midfielder, broke through, smashed the ball in the first 30 seconds of the game, hits exactly the same crossbar I hit, this time one inch lower, bang, goes in the back of the net, Chelsea go on to win the first FA Cup in 26 years, and they were on the road to lots of successes that they've had. Um, and then, so you go after, go after QPR, um, then get the chance to start going into punditry after, um, after your playing career. Just give us a quick flavour of what that looked like. Sure. Pun- uh, working for the BBC was great. Um, I thought I may become a manager, but... The BBC stuff was coming in, so I went with that for a while, and it really took off better than I could have expected. Um, you know, I was I was a decent player, wasn't the best player I'd ever played, um, but I was on in the BBC squad there with the likes of Shearer and Ian Wright and uh, Alan Hansen. In fact, Alan, I asked Alan, you remember Alan Hansen? He just retired a couple of years ago, but on the screens for many years. I said, big big Alan. I said what's the secret to being a good pundit? And in that really broad Scottish accent, he, he said to me, Gavin, he said, it's, it's not what you say, it's the way you say it. <laughs> and I think that was Alan, you know, very conviction and clear. And, um, and I had a good time. And uh, always thinking how I could present the, 
game to people in the living room. I knew I had to be took quite good at that uh, because all these other guys had achieved more than me uh, on the field. Um, but it was a good time of, of being at the BBC, a second dream career. So some of us will be sitting there thinking, okay, so you've got this, you've had this first dream career, um, loads of schoolboy dreams there to go and play Premier League football. Then you get the second dream career, as you, mm. as you put it. Uh, but now some of us will know that you're now a, a, a pastor in Canada. So you went to train to be a pastor, leader of a church in Canada. Mm. Um, just tell us, why, why on earth would you, would you ever make that kind of decision? And what kind of truths do you believe about Jesus yep. that mean that, that that decision begins to make sense? Um, okay, so I'll ask, answer the first bit first and... And that is to say that, yeah, I, I hadn't really sensed a call to ministry till about 10 years ago. Um, and I was still working for the BBC at the time. Um, had these desires to maybe teach or preach a little bit in the church. And my church leadership began to test that out. So it's kind of strange. You know, I'm working for Match of the Day and Football Focus and then I'm preaching. And, and then I started to do some studies of Old Testament and New Testament at Cambridge and you know, all the ordinands for the Church of England are there with me, and all the lads just want to talk about what I said on Match of the Day, and I want to study the book of Genesis. <laughs> I want to see what the teacher's saying. But uh, that was my life then, and then I said to my wife, Amanda, I said, uh, I'm going to give it up and take some time to prepare for church ministry. And we could have stayed in England, but we'd been going to Canada quite a bit at the time, and we decided to go away for some anonymity, really. Uh, my profile was quite high in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, and want to go somewhere where people would hear what I had to say from the Word of God alone. Uh, thought it would be character building too, leaving behind everything we'd we'd known. Um, so we moved. I had a minute on my last match of the day, I think it was, in uh, the Euros in 2008 to tell the country why I wasn't going to be there next season. And without sounding like a crazy man who's running off to the mountains to study theology... Um, but it, it, I think it came over okay, but people were shocked that I'd give up this second dream career. Um, and we've been there nine years now, and I'm one of the pastors at the church in Calgary, in Western Canada, in Alberta, and I also speak uh, globally. That's part of my ministry, part of which come in here a couple of times a year to England. Um, but, but how did I get, you know, from, from the pitch to the pulpit, really, is that, you know, well, obviously I was a Christian, um, but I've been a Christian... Uh, practically all my playing career. I have to go back to, to when I was 18 uh, for, for really for that uh, story because I had grown up just wanting to achieve the goal, literally. I was a goal achiever. Um, you know, I was pretty good at school. I set goals and achieved them. I looked, you know, I wanted to follow my dad's footsteps and I knew the, that what I needed to do to get there. It was all about achieving it. And I thought that, you know, uh, becoming a professional footballer is what would make me happy, it's what the world tells you will make you happy, if you have fame, if you have fortune, if you have success, the magazines are blasting it out there, this is what the kids are getting told, um, be famous, be well known, that will make give you satisfaction, you know, get a lot of followers on Twitter, a lot of fr friends on Facebook, get that affirmation, and uh, I achieved the goal uh, eight, at 16, literally, and then I found I wasn't really so happy, because football was my God, um, if I played well, I was up. If I played bad, I was down. So I'm up and down and up and down. I'm thinking, wow, this isn't what, you know, it, it kind of said in the handbook. Um, and I'm pondering these things at that stage of my life. 
Um, and then just uh, one night, I was living at home at the time, I decided to walk literally 100 yards down the road to my local Methodist church and check it out, not really expecting too much. And the minister, I don't remember what he said in the, in the service, but he said to me, why don't you come back to my house after? He said, we have a, a youth meeting there. He said, um, you know, I'll talk about the Bible and maybe we'll sing a couple of songs and pray. And I thought, okay, I'll check it out. And, you know, I pulled up that night. I remember it very clearly. I pulled up that night to his house, pulled up in my Ford Escort XR3i, <laughs> a real 80s car. And I had that kind of 80s hair. Um, and I remember stepping out of that car and going into his front room and there was about half a dozen uh, young people in there and I went in with everything the world says will make you happy. I had that money in my pocket, had a, a star career going, um, I had that notoriety, uh, I was in the in crowd, they had nothing, they weren't in the in crowd, they didn't have anything but when they spoke about Jesus Christ, when they prayed there was a joy and a reality to what they had that I just did not have. And so, first of all, it was the witness of these young Christians that really struck me. Um, and then secondly, the minister began to tell me what the gospel is. And the gospel means good news. It's the good news of what God has done to save people uh, like you and me through his son, Jesus Christ. And um, I thought God's up there somewhere, like lots of people, but there was no impact on my life at all. God was kind of like Father Christmas. Pray if I'm in a bit of trouble. He'd get me out of it because I'm a good person, really. That's what I thought. I was a moral kid, didn't really break the rules too much. But as he began to open the Bible and show me, it's literally from the first pages of the, the Bible in Genesis that God created this universe. And I think we all have a, a sense of that. Uh, you know, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, you know, you, I, I live in, you can't really see it in these cloudy skies, but in Alberta, we get these amazing skies. Sometimes you look up. You know, the mountains, and there's a sheets and sheets and sheets of stars that just fill the sky, and you're drawn out of yourself to see there's billions of these, and then billions of galaxies, and who made this? So you're drawn out to see this, this God who, who, who created this, and the Bible says that he did, and he created man, male and female, in his image, and immediately that makes you feel very small compared to this God who made you, and yet very valued because he made you in his image. And so I see that in the scriptures. And then he said, yeah, but look here, just a little bit on, and you see the first people he made, Adam and Eve, sinned against him. And ever since they sinned, we've all been sinning. And lots of people say, yeah, well, well I sin, I do stuff wrong. A um, couple of things on that, you know, it's not just the things you do wrong that, that make you a sinner. It's because you are a sinner by nature that you sin, and that there's a nature of human beings is that they sin. Just look at the newspapers tomorrow. Just look at them today. Just look at the brokenness around us in the world. Look at the relational brokenness, even in your own families today. You will see that is a nature of humans to sin. That's one thing. The second thing is that if God is just and he is holy, he must punish sin. A lot of people, and I was one of those people, I got to this point where he's telling me, uh, this and I thought, well, God will forgive me, won't He? Because He's forgiving, um, and He explains it to me like this. And I get this now because I've spoken in lots of prisons, and prisoners get this. I say, you know, if there's a judge and he's a just judge, and he's got a guilty criminal in front of him, guilty of the crime of murder, let's say, what does the just judge going to do with the guilty criminal? 
can he wink and just let him off, just forgive him, because that's what a lot of people think God will do with them, just forgive. And they go, oh, he's got to punish the criminal if he's a just judge, because they're all inside, aren't they? <laughs> they're all in prison for it. And, um, and God's like that. He must judge. And so the judgment of God is that if you die without the forgiveness of your sins, you'll stay under the judgment of God, which is what it is to be in hell forever. It's a sliver, this life. I mean, I remember when I just started as an apprentice in football, and now, you know, I'm an old guy who can't run around a field for more than 10 minutes, and life is quick, and then it is eternity with or without God. And the Bible tells us, you know, one life, and then we face this God, and that if he's going to be just, he's got to punish sinners like me and you and everyone falls short of the glory of God the Bible tells us because they're all sin so this point I'm thinking where's the good news it doesn't sound good to me uh it sounds like I'm under the justice and of God I'm going to die and go to hell and um and he said well God is just but he's also at the same time merciful and in his great love and mercy he sent his own son Jesus Christ who came fully God and fully man, walked and talked with us and yet was God, who lived the perfect life that we can never live. No matter how much we try, we'll always sin because the nature is to be sinners. And he lived perfection to God. So how do you get into heaven? Live a perfect life. Can anyone live a perfect life? No. Jesus did, though. And then we've got another problem is we need to pay for the punishment for the crimes we commit against God, for the sin. Well, Jesus goes to the cross, and on the cross, he takes the punishment in the place of whoever will believe in him. And he rose again from the dead, so he didn't stay dead. Because he's God, he rose again, uh, and he's risen to the right hand of God. He will come again, and that's a great hope for Christians, is because Jesus is coming again, and he'll take his church to be with him forever, and yet there will be justice for those who don't turn and trust in him. And what that means then is we've got to turn, we've got to... The Bible calls it repentance, turning away from trusting in our own good works uh, to justify ourselves before God, turning away from our unbelief and saying there is no God, and turning to him in faith and saying, I deserve hell, I deserve the punishment of God because I'm a sinner, and yet because of his great love, he's given his son, and I can have forgiveness, I can know this God, because it's ultimately about knowing God and knowing who he is and being in a right relationship with him. That's, that's the gospel. And, um, and I, I heard it for a couple of weeks, and, and I believed, um, and I was saved. And, uh, you know, uh, people say to me, you know, football, you enjoy football. I say, football's great, but, but Jesus is better. You know, like I say, f- football was what? Just for a few years. Jesus is forever. And, uh, and that's the, the kind of message that I try and convey to people. And yet, is it the easy life? Some people say, well, get Jesus, you get the easy life. Well, no, it's, you know, people say to me, is it difficult being a Christian and a footballer? And my first answer is, it's difficult being a Christian in any walk of life. Yeah, you're fighting against your own sin, putting it to death. You're fighting against, you know, what the world is telling you. You're trying to stand firm and give a witness to Jesus Christ. And you're going to get pushback for that. Um, It's not an easy life, but it's a joyful life. And we can know joy in times of of suffering, and I've suffered different things, as we all have in here, um, but Jesus gives great hope because our best life is to come, uh, and so the echo then of that best life to come gives us sustenance in this life now in difficult days. Well, thanks so much for being willing to share some of that um, with us. Just take us, um, so you become a Christian at so 18, um, yep. just what difference did it make 
living as a Christian in your in your playing career. So mm. you heard that you know it turned out for you that it was going to be right for you to pursue a teaching role in the yeah. church. But yeah. what what difference does it make in your in your playing career mm. um, to to be a Christian? Well, I think you know I suppose I've got to show a little bit of a. A similarity between between us all and all kind of careers and life, and then slightly the difference. You know, the fact is there's there's ups and downs in all of, of life. There's there's sufferings, put it that way. There's trials, and in football, one of the differences is those trials come. They're massive and they come very quick. You can have a massive high on a Saturday and be the hero as you've scored, and you get the headlines in the paper, and a massive low by Tuesday when you've had a nightmare, you've missed an open goal, the crowd are baying for your blood, the press are on you, and you've been dropped from the team, and you've suffered an injury, and you're thinking your career's over. Um, and so there is a perspective that Jesus brings um, in terms of, he says, I'm with you to the end of the age. Okay, so I have the, the presence of Christ by his Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit indwells believers. I have this presence of Christ by his spirit with me in all times and all places. So God is with you, the Bible says, who can be against you. So there's that perspective of even in trials, he walks with me through difficult days. Um, and by doing that, by showing that kind of I've got a greater trust than what's going on around me, I can actually then be a witness to other people in the difficult days. So for Christians, it's actually in the difficult times that you become even a greater uh, testimony to the goodness of Jesus, because if it's all just going well for you all the time, people might say, well, you know, I'll take you, Jesus, if he gets me a BMW. Yeah? But they won't get what Jesus did and what they need to do to, to repent, to believe in him. So I think that would be the difference. I remember when we lost that FA Cup final, a teammate of mine, John Spencer, little Scottish striker, played for me with me at Chelsea, was so distraught because football was his God. He threw his runners-up medal in the River Thames. So it's in there somewhere if you want to go diving for it. And I gave mine to my dad, who was here, you know, just thanking him for all he'd done, and it still meant something. But everything was laid on that. For me, it wasn't, and I could kind of testify to that. You know, football isn't everything, John, and... We roomed together at Queen's Park Rangers when we went there together. And last year, he just he didn't have anything to do with Christianity. He wasn't having it at all. Uh, and then last year, I got a text from him. He said, Gavin, you'll never believe it. He said, I'm reading the Bible. So I'm going to church. I mean, this is a guy that we'd have the club chaplain come in at, Q- at QPR and he'd get on the, the floor and try and crawl out the room past him and say, the vicar's in the room, you know. He would be... Uh... But this guy, like, confronted by the, the brevity of life, by what he was living for, by the perspective, and the fact that, like me, you know, I realized that my biggest problem wasn't gaining the approval of the crowd, but being under the disapproval of God for my sin, and that I needed to be in a right relationship with him, and he'd done what was necessary through Jesus. And this John Spencer, who didn't have that perspective when he was playing, has now got that perspective and, and, and been saved. And so just an encouragement for Christians in here, Tell people the gospel. It's only through the gospel people get saved. 